right. Oh, I'm going to edit it. I'm going to cut it here and <laughs> edit it. <laughs> Hey everybody, it's Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney. Over there, Steve. Hey. And today we're doing the third part of our read-through of Sycorax's Daughters. The third and part of our 24-part read-through. Nah, it's not going to be 24 parts. I exaggerate because it's funny. It, it is a long book. It, it is a very big book. Not bad, because so far it's been a good book. Oh yeah. It just It just... It takes up an anthology of dark fiction by African American women, and you noted last week that it's also up for a Bram Stoker. Yep, we have seven stories to cover today instead of our usual five. Right, and just remember, uh, we didn't go over this last time. Uh, we are foregoing the poems because this is actually stories and poems in this volume. Mm-hmm. We're skipping over the poems uh, because. I feel that we couldn't really do justice to them. So, right. We're going to just jump right into it. And the first segment is going to be Summer Skin by Zen E. Rocklin. Yes. Now, this is, this is an interesting little tale. Um, we have a, a young woman who is afflicted with a skin condition uh, of a... An unknown cause, perhaps supernatural. Right. And you kind of get the feeling that it, it's semi-genetic, or that maybe at least that her 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 uh, people have dealt with it before. Yeah, but uh, it's a very uncomfortable thing. It's almost like a the Zen describes it as molting. Right. She sheds her skin um, every year, but even doing so, the process is painful. And um, the, the the end result is is painful, and she doesn't really have any comfort being in her own skin mm-hmm. ever. And to in order to facilitate the the molting process, uh, the character has to take a special bath, right? Uh, and it, that only her aunties know mm-hmm. how to make. The story opens, she's sitting in, a, in the subway, and there is a woman on the train who looks like one of her aunties. Right. And she begins following this woman. And while while this following, the shadowing is taking place, we we are treated to the narration of, you know, what is going on with the with her skin and how all of this came came to be, how she discovered it. Right. You get a series of flashbacks between following the auntie and you you realize that this is something that uh, the protagonist has been dealing with her entire life so either genetic supernatural but at least it's like running in that family mm-hmm. now one of the great things i liked about this story is that it, it's one of those those tales where the events happen but there's no there's no explanation to what's going on here outside of you know the obvious right which is kind of essential to um, the the climax of the story, mm-hmm. because it does kind of smack you across the face. The explanation, aside from like just matter of fact history mm-hmm. and experience, 
would lessen that blow. Yes. And this is one of those stories where, you know, that's why you're reading it. <laughs> right. The, the, the effect is, is heightened by the lack of information. Yes. It just kind of makes you wonder and makes you think and scratch your head a little bit once you're done as to exactly what is transpiring here. In almost every anthology, there's always that story that is like that, that, that you don't get a lot in the way of explanation. Mm-hmm. And you get that like ending that smacks you in the face. And that's always um, a highlight to me, if, if it's done well, mm-hmm. of, um, of a, a collection. Um, oftentimes, I'll go back and reread, if not parts of that story, the whole thing again, just to kind of um, get it settled in my mind. It's a good ratio, too, of like build up to climax. Uh, disseminating just enough of the flashbacks and the background information. Excellent story. Uh, great way to lead off this section of the book. Yes. Uh, next up on the list is Taking the Good by Dana McKnight. It's a monster story. It's nice to have these sprinkled in every once in a while. And it's not a it's not like a cosmic horror monster story or anything like that. It's more more like kind of a classic monster story, but it definitely has that 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 modern flavor to it. Yeah, it's got the modern flavor to it, and it's definitely got um blurred lines as to who and who is good, who is bad? Yeah, I don't think I don't think anybody is really good, person. Yeah, but some people are better than others. Right. The the story opens up with a with a pair of rogues, um, looking for the next big score. They they're shoplifting from a from a big box store, yeah, like Walmart or something, like a Walmart or a grocery store or something like that. And then they decide to head down to the local bar. Okay, now. Before you go on, yes, uh, the one is named Helene, mm-hmm. and she is the the protagonist, or it's her point of view, right? And the other is um, Normandy. Mm-hmm. Her name. Did you not picture Normandy as Storm with her mohawk? Kinda, because that's what with the leather jacket. And the Mohawk. That's the image that came to my mind. Morlock Storm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I can see that these are these are uh streetwise people. They are living hand to mouth. Um they are also lovers. Right, but you, you don't get the feeling you get the feeling that um Helene puts in a lot more than Normandy does. Uh yeah, yeah. It's all you know, Helene is you know, she's the she's the sweet one, I guess. She's the innocent in all of this, really. She's she kind of along for the ride. Helene's the the POV character, the every person. Mm-hmm. And uh, Normandy's that friend that everyone has, that uh, everyone yeah, wants to be around, and comes in like a whirlwind into your life, and uh, ends up fucking everything up. Right, you, you you definitely could tell she calls the shots, and uh, Helene is not better for knowing her. After their caper at the local big box store, they head down to the local bar and uh, they, they're they making plans for the rest of the evening's entertainment, which is probably, you know, uh, scooping half full drinks off the bar before right. the barbacks get to them and casing the joint looking for 
some uh, some pockets to pick and you know some someone to roll possibly. Right, it reminds me of the nineties. As our characters are getting set up for their evening, a mysterious woman appears. Mysterious woman who, even though it's cold, no no uh, moisture comes out of her breath. Yes. No moisture comes out of her breath, and she's taking a, an interest in Helene. Much to the chagrin of Normandy, and not because Normandy's jealous, but because Normandy can't believe that someone would choose Helene over her. She introduces herself as Lamia. Yeah, that's kind of, that should like set off the alarms. Normandy decides that yeah, this is gonna this is gonna be a good score. I mean, she's wearing expensive clothes. She's got to have lots of money in that wallet. Yeah, Normandy's just thinking of rolling her, and she keeps trying to interject herself, interject herself, and she keeps getting like pushed gets, to the side. Gets a cold shoulder, and finally they go outside. It's like, hey, you know, you you want to get high? Which, yeah, Normandy's all into that, and we can't tell you what happens, right? And it ends. On an unusual, with an unusual kind of tone, because you don't really know if Helene's situation has improved any. Right. Um, yeah, I guess it, it all depends on your point of view of what improvement is. Yeah, and this is this is another one of those great kind of um, the anti ending, because you know other things happen. That's just where this one cuts off. Right. And, and there's more to the story. Yeah, you can definitely extrapolate what happens next. Right. Well, you like, can extrapolate, but you're only you're still only speculating about what happens. Well, next. yeah, and that's the great thing about endings like this is it, it leaves it up to your disposition, the reader's disposition as to what happened. But there's no canon. There's only the information you have and what kind of a person you are. That's true. That's true. And it's 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 very well done. Fun stuff. Next, we have uh, Mona Livelong, Paranormal Detective Two, uh, about by Valjean Jeffers. We've read some stuff by Ms. Jeffers before. We have. Um, she has been in Griots too. Mm-hmm. Right. She also has a story, which is another excerpt um, in the Steam Funk collection. Mona Livelong Two. This is the case of the powerless witch. Uh, the novel. In full is available on Amazon, and its first volume, Case of the Angry Ghost, also available on Amazon and uh, directly on her site, www.vjeffersandqveal.com. They feature erotic fiction, steampunk, fantasy, science fiction book, so you can get uh, this novel in full. Anyway, this is <laughs> it's a it's an excerpt from a longer work. And one that is right up our alley, as it is a detective story. It is. And and Steve and I both agree that possibly the greatest movie ever made was The Maltese Falcon. Yes, the, the, the one with Bogart. Now, the great thing is, is that this excerpt gives us just enough feel for the world. It gives us the first step in the procedural formula to, to make you really want more. Yeah. I guess this is the beginning of the book. And it takes you... To the point where she's just starting to get in the groove. Peel back the onion layers. Um, you find out a little bit about her background and her relationship with um, some of the other characters. Mm-hmm. And then 
it is yanked away from you. <laughs> it has all of the flavor of a good procedural detective novel. It has all the flavor of a good urban fantasy story. Yeah. And it is also steampunk. So yeah. we have that 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 kind of gaslight and top yeah. hats and stuff. There's corsets and weird glasses and all sorts of things. Yeah, and then it also seems to have kind of a Caribbean flair to it as well. So there's so many layers to this particular cake. Yeah, I mean, the, the world that this hints at is so rich. Even if the story hadn't grabbed me, but it, and it had, I'd want to just visit this world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's a very interesting world. And that's one of the great things about the, the procedural is that, yeah, it's it's a formula people do it all the time but it's a it's a great skeleton to lay all of this detail on because the plot itself is kind of self-propelling so you can spend more time building building a world around it right the world is revealed through her interaction with other characters mm-hmm. and, and um, the space in her head it's definitely not bogged down by you know paragraphs and paragraphs of description a very rich world that that you can just picture inside your head. The very very visual writing in this in this excerpt. Mm-hmm. I think we might have to check out this series. Yeah, that might be a good idea. Do a couple episodes on I'll it. Put a pin in it. Next up on the list is Malady of Need. Kini Ibura Salam. Thank you. I couldn't read my handwriting. Now this is a this is a small piece of flash fiction. Yeah, this almost borders on. Right. It's very, very poetic language. But what we have is it's a second person story. So the person narrating is talking to you. Right. And you are a prisoner in in this futuristic world. And you are being kept from the object of your desire. Right. Very downer kind of story. (laughs) It is. It kind of. Um, you know, you're going to bring what you bring to these things. It's the, the way it's written is very, like you said, poetic in the language that it uses. It's almost uh, blank verse. It's, it's obviously it's it's metaphor for something. And, and each reader is going to bring something different because, you know, that's it's just because the you is constantly repeated. You, you, you you're going to be looking inside yourself to, to right. find out what that object is that you're, that you're prevented from. And for, for me, I'm not going to go ahead and say what it is because you know, that's just me, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a positive thing. Right. It, it was almost like prison was almost a better place. Your object in the story is, is, you know, it's described as a as a woman, but it doesn't seem like a very nice woman. You know, a temptress to me. You know, reading it, it wasn't a very positive place to be, and it kind of makes you think about your priorities in your life and stuff like that. And so, I would say it probably did its job. Very focused in on the the unrequited desire. Yeah, I would like to see a little bit more of uh, Miss Salam's work to see what else she has. To offer because you know it's 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 dark, <laughs> definitely dark and very poetic as well. Yeah, it's like a um, like an impressionistic piece. Mm-hmm. 
yes. where you know you, you get like this the slice uh, it's almost like looking at like a painting but but it's it's definitely not clear what you're looking at just by looking at it or reading it you kind of definitely have to step back to see the big picture mm-hmm. kind of like Monet or something like that right so, yeah good job yeah yep. the title the malady of need doesn't help <laughs> Set the mood for something positive. No, the, the malady of need <laughs> sets the mood perfectly. Well, it doesn't set the mood for something positive. No, no, the the malady of need, and yeah, you kind of you kind of get this. Oh boy, this you know it starts it starts weighing on you from the title. Right here we go again. Here we go again. <laughs> All right, and then next up we have the Ever After by L. Marie Wood. Now, this one I thought was really interesting, and it reminded me of uh, Cezanne Kohler's work. Yeah, I could definitely see that. What we have in this story is it's a series of of vignettes speaking of some rather strange experiences, some pleasant but still kind of odd and disturbing, and others downright hellish. Right, and they all end in this place. That it's almost like a pastoral scene, the... Description is used that it's like a child's drawing. Yeah, it's, it, it's it, the colors are are cartoonish. Mm-hmm. The the sky is too blue. The grass is a weird shade of green. Uh, the trees are you know are kind of out of place, but very distinct. Right, and and even one um, is is shaped like a cave. Like the mm-hmm. the, the foliage is is something that holds on to you. And keeps you right, and we go through this this list, and the final chapter really ties it all up in a much more disturbing bow. Right, and and the vignettes are are pretty freakish. The thing, it, it kind of I don't know if you've ever read um, Philip Dick's uh, A Maze of Death. I don't or, recall it or Ubik. No, I don't recall that one. Definitely okay. Um, you know, I, I can't. I don't want to give it away uh, because it's a great ending. Mm-hmm. But, but but Philip K. Dick had like a recurring theme, and those are the two that come to mind of a shared um, hallucinogen hallucinogenic experiences. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, you know, th- this definitely falls into that kind of aura. I'm not an expert at this, but I'm going to guess because Dick was into Gnosticism that it's a Gnostic concept as well mm-hmm. of having like this this shared nightmare escape. But like I said, that you know, you'd have to talk to Scott Jones about that. I, I thought it was really well done. It was really well constructed. I found myself reading through and wondering what the hell is going on here. Yeah, the 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 thing that kind of con- is confusing and it's effectively confusing is that each vignette is told from the first person point of view. Mm-hmm. So um, you read through the first one, and you're like, "What the fuck?" Because it's like about a woman in an office who. Uh, goes out for a smoke break or not even a smoke break. Cause she doesn't smoke, but she's going out for a break and ev- gravity turns off. Right. And everybody starts floating up and people who are inside get crushed on the ceiling. Right. So it's almost like gravity is reversed rather than turned off Yeah, because yeah, people you know, are there's... falling up. Mm-hmm. And then at, at some point it goes right back again and everybody falls down and she's, it's going through her mind that how can I possibly survive this? But she does. And that's where it, that one leaves off. And then the next one is about 
um, same point of view, or, you know, it's still I, it turns out it's about a guy who ends up murdering his lover mm-hmm. um, and, and gets away with it only to find himself in the strange landscape. But it isn't until the third vignette where it's again I and a completely another point of view where you where I found oh all right these are different stories right um, from different different people so mm-hmm. it's not the same person experiencing that that was a little jarring I'm sure that was was on purpose because it kind of ties in to that shared experience mm-hmm. where where identity is kind of blurred I guess right. there 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 is no real individual self in in the greater context of it. It's just this collection of experiences. Yeah. So so really as you're as you're reading through and and you're reading these collective experiences and you're reading them in the first person and and as the characters identities are kind of blurred, your own identity starts getting blurred. Right when you read first person, because, you know, you have that tendency to have a, an allowed narrative going on in your head and you're reading this and you're saying, I, I, I over and over again. Right. And it kind of puts you in that position and it becomes even more psychedelic. Right. It it puts you in that position, but not as like, um, as harshly as that second person narrative did. Mm, because the exactly. second person narrative is almost accusatory when you mm. get you do this you do that right you are trudging along with your hands manacled that's almost you know somebody is 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 controlling you telling you um you know you got your, your gm telling you what's going on right right well, your your free will has kind of been taken away in that respect right and when you're in in second person and because you're being told what you think and what you're doing. And then in, in an I sort of situation is the, the line between reader and red starts blurring. When, right. Because, because it's used effectively. Because you're experiencing it as I. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what makes this story really, really work. And then the final chapter is, is written in third person. Right. Then that's kind of like the the explanation chapter of what you just, right. what just happened to you. So you you go through these these first five, and the identity is blurred, and everything starts is working, you know, kind of against your need for reality to make narrative sense, and and in this this case of this shared hallucinogenic experience, and then you get through to the final chapter, which is written in the third person. And you're just suddenly yanked right back out of it. I actually read the final chapter twice. Next up on the list is perfect connection by Deanna Zalas. Now this is a really interesting story. Yeah. It's, it starts with a murder. (laughs) It does. And it's the protagonist who's doing the murder. Mm -hmm. The moitering. (laughs) The premise of the story is is that people have spirit companions, the imaginary friend, or even to an extent, maybe even the guardian angel. Right. And that's how it starts. Right. And we have our protagonist and and her imaginary friend, Alexa, which I just thought was kind of kind of funny. Yeah, it was I think that might have been a a nice little joke. If it wasn't, it should have been. <laughs> Alexa is 
completely different. Now, all these spirit guys, they take the form of being kind of a twin to their host, essentially. Right. Your ho- the the person who their host who their host yeah. their host can see them in mirrors. Right. Only in only in reflections. Um, and other people can't see that unless they have a special set of of glasses called truth glasses, right? Right. And that is a really interesting concept because it, it, it kind of evokes the they live sort of thing. It does, except you can't hear, you still can't hear you them. You can't hear them. But these glasses are, are manufactured and shipped out almost seemingly at random. Right. Like, Different people. Like in David. Mm-hmm. And you put these on, and you can see everyone's everyone's attending spirits, which is a, it's just Naomi and Alexa are, are at first having a severe disagreement over <laughs> what just transpired. Right, and and it's cool because you get dropped in, and you don't know why. And isn't until later, once again through like just the events that happen, that you come to find out why it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's nice because it kind of, it's a little confusing, but it it kind of coaxes you to read further. Mm -hmm. It it coaxes you to read further. And there's a lot of world building in this story. Mm -hmm. So basically what you have is you have um, an organization, um, that Naomi works for who's, um, they're called the grasp and their, their sole purpose is to prevent bad things that's stem out of having a spirit guide so such as possession Mm -hmm. you can get too close to your spirit guide and it can actually take over you permanently and that's bad Mm -hmm. so their job is to sever uh the spirit from the person now opposed to them the splitters right who Mm -hmm. are an arm of the church right their sole purpose is all spiritual companions are bad it's all possession no matter what and we're gonna sever every one of them no matter if if they're merely a companion or if you're possessed so their propaganda is everyone's possessed if they have spirit companion they're you're possessed and it seems like the splitters are um officially sanctioned Mm -hmm. whereas grasp is an underground organization Alexa and Naomi arguing, driving back to town. Suddenly, it's like, stop here. Something's going on. And they go into this restaurant. And they meet a waiter. And he's just like this really good-looking guy. And he's like, okay. um," And you're like, okay, well, this is going to kind of go with uh, maybe a paranormal romance kind of deal. Sure. You know, I'm down. And, and, And then... Deanna completely flips the script on you and and you're reading along and you're thinking, okay, this is, you know, yeah, we have our meet cute and, you know, things are going to go fairly well for them maybe. And then everything just goes ape shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's you. And, and we learn the truth about what's going on in this, in this world. Right. So usually in these situations when when um, Alexa tells Naomi, stop here, do this, do that, they're hunting a possessed. Mm-hmm. 
But this time, it's um, Alexa got struck by Cupid's arrow. Oh, yeah. And detected the presence of a very sexy companion. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, really what it is is Alexa has the hots for this waiter's um, spiritual companion. Mm-hmm. They are irresistibly drawn to one another, and so are Naomi and this guy. It starts with a J. Javari and his companion is Jonathan. Yep. So, so yeah, they meet with uh, Javari, the waiter, and his spirit guide, Jonathan. And, and Alexa really- is just like is on, literally on fire. <laughs> right. And and it, it really it freaks Naomi out because she thinks that there's like some foul play going on on the mm-hmm. part of um, Javari. Right. Well, I mean, she just came out of. Uh, a relationship they were the murder victim was her fiance at the at the time of the killing right and she had been split voluntarily right. and decides that um she should be split as well right and because of that she's she's walking into this relationship suspecting suspecting further foul play right this time that she has to be the one on guard it was alexa that warned her of her fiance's potential betrayal. And now she feels like because Alexa is just madly in love and, and out, seemingly out of control. Well, right. And, and Alexa has never acted like this before. It's not right. It's unusual. She's behaving strangely. Yes. So that puts her on her guard as well. There's a little bit of everything in this story. There's, there is that romantic aspect. Uh, there's definitely that, that urban fantasy aspect. It's all brought together so well. Yeah, you, you get like that that uh, believable future, I mm-hmm. guess. It's it's close enough in the future to where we are, and the tech technology that they have is similar enough to what we have that we are able to just like, um, oh, truth glasses, sure. Yeah, why not? It's a, it's a it's a kind of a five minutes into the future. The last story we're going to look at today is. Foundling by Tanea D. Johnson. Now, this is a science fiction tale of vengeance. Yeah, this is straight up sci-fi. Character who is a teleporter operator for a rescue organization. It looks like they get government contracts to do to teleport people out of disaster areas. Mm-hmm. It begins with a with an earthquake. Her job is to teleport these victims out. Some people have chips in their hands that makes them easy to locate and easy to teleport. Uh, but these chips are the providence of the rich. Right. Our character is a specialist at getting the unchipped people out. Right. Up until the point of the story, she has a perfect record. She has a perfect record, and she has, even though it is uh, exhausting work, she mm-hmm. has actually written her own protocols and algorithms to facilitate getting unchipped people out because it's not an easy task basically what she's doing is is there is like this window of space and time like a portable wormhole right and there's only a fraction of a second that this window will be just right to go from point a to point b during this one particular rescue she loses a child she loses a child and the weird thing is that and it's not her fault Right. Uh, the, the child actually disappeared right before she was going to hit the button. The weird thing is that everybody, like like you said, she's the best 
everybody else has lost people right in doing this she actually her losing somebody sets up a, a just a mountain of consequences for her the higher ups at the ngo are just pretty much waiting for her to screw up right but like now if we, if, if you and i were teleporter operators mm-hmm. and we fucked up like that no big deal um, right 24 hours probation or, or you know down mm-hmm. and then you're back on the job she actually gets transferred to like the the teleport technician equivalent of the kiddie pool mm-hmm. right she gets a, like a major downgrade yeah she has to go to corporate and everything is um is is automated right like, and all the systems have to be run vanilla you can't run any custom code you right. cannot do anything to make your job easier or more efficient. Right. It is you have to run it like this because we track everything. And that, that's how she made her reputation is she he, she runs her own code. Mm-hmm. So she's tweaked the system enough so that she can be efficient and fast and good. Right. And that she, she no longer has that. It's almost like she's... She's driving a Lamborghini and then they say, okay, you know, here's your, here's your new car. And they give her like a, a, a Yugo <laughs> for, for those of our audience who are old enough to remember the Yugo. <laughs> As it turns out, the child that everyone believes she lost was actually taken. Right. It comes to light that the child was taken, was sold into the flesh trade. Yeah, was teleported to the dark uh, a location known to the dark web. So obviously, somebody is is paying someone in in this organization, in the teleport company's organization, to uh, snatch people for, mm-hmm. make it look like an accident. And our hero gets blamed for it, right? Which um, that's like the big mistake, right? And it's it, it leads to this really great scene. She's in she's in prison. She she learns uh she learns what happened. Right. Uh what you know, she gets a lead from her cellmate about she things. Knows, that happened. She knows who did it. That's she knows it. one of the people responsible. Right. Before she was incarcerated, she had tracked down um somebody in the company who had, was um monitoring everything on the on the slide mm-hmm. not through code yes so it, it, she was she was framed more or less mm-hmm. and uh unfortunately you're talking about a woman who can write code by hand mm-hmm. so she's not she's not stupid so she spends her time in prison preparing herself for when she gets out and she's going to enact her plan for payback. She's going to stop these guys the only way she knows how. Right. So while she's in prison, she designs a series of algorithms and, and hand writes this computer code to do what she does, but to locate the people who are responsible for taking these, these, these women and girls. Right. So she does a bit of detective work, finds out who it is. She learns. She she takes a picture. She takes a page from uh, her old boss's book, and you know it's not much of a twist. She finds out that her old boss is the guy right. who's been monitoring everything. 
And she takes a page from his book and she figures out how to monitor all of them throughout the entire world. Right. And then she begins her one woman revenge core. Right. And I love how she finances this, though, is she finances this through theft. Yeah, she starts stealing art. Mm-hmm. She becomes a, an art thief. And I'm just, I'm just like really enthralled by the use of this technology in all of these different ways. It's just a great, uh, almost cyberpunk kind of kind of thriller. All of the action of the story takes place with our main character sitting in a chair looking at computer screens. Right, except for the time when she's in prison. Except for the time when she's in prison. Yeah, so it, this is actually the first um, straight up, like, no genre-bending science fiction story we've had on the show. And, and a very good one. Yeah, it is really good. This was probably the only one with kind of a happy ending. Yeah. It, it, had, the, it had the most upbeat ending. It definitely didn't have, like, the, the usual bittersweet ending, which mm-hmm. is the most you can hope for in most of these these types of stories. Right. You're, you're left at the end of this one going, hell yeah. <laughs> which is nice, and it's, like, right towards the end of the middle part of the book. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely a, uh, at this point, you probably need a lift anyway. And that wraps it up for our third part. Yep. So, yeah, so far, this uh, this book is, it started out strong, and it continues to be strong. Yes, it is It is just left and right punches all the way through. And you said we were about halfway through? Uh, we're over halfway. So we'll be back next week for part four. And once again, this is Sycorax's Daughters. You can pick it up on Amazon. Valjean Jeffers, uh, Mona Livelong, Case of the Powerless Witch. And the first edition of her Mona Livelong stories, The Case of the Angry Ghost, available on Amazon as well. And at her website, vjeffersandqveal.com. Uh, she's also released an audiobook recently, and we'll have the link to that in the show notes as well. So definitely check check out this book, Sycorax's Daughters. Check out Valjean Jeffers. You'll be glad you did. And until next episode, keep 30 left points.